Welcome back to CFO Weekly, where we're talking with financial leaders about how to build efficiency in their teams, create time for strategy, and ultimately get results with your host, Megan Weiss. Let's jump right in. Today, my guest is Ken Wentworth, aka Mr. Biz. Ken is a strategic business partner who helps business owners run their companies more profitably and more efficiently. After ascending to the top 3% at a Fortune 15 company and breaking six world records, Mr. Biz now uses his experience and expertise to help others develop their skills to become more successful owners. He is the author of two best-selling books. His most recent, Pathways to Profits, provides an actionable blueprint to excelling in any economy. Ken is the award-winning host of Mr. Biz Radio, which airs 55-plus hours each week across six different networks. Being an influential business guru, he has amassed a social media following of over 270,000. For his expertise, he has been featured on Forbes, Yahoo Finance, Fast Company, The New York Finance, and American Express. Hello, Ken, and thank you for joining me today. Hi, Megan. I'm, I'm, I'm glad to be here and I'm, I'm humbled to be on your, your podcast. We set this up a while back and I've been looking forward to it ever since. Well, thanks. Uh, today, we're going to be discussing the always important topic of cutting costs and how best to achieve this objective without negatively impacting your business. And I'm really looking forward to this discussion. So let's get started. All right. Sounds good. Let's start with your career progression. Can you walk me through how you got to where you are today? Yeah. Do you have about three days, Megan? Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. So I, I, my undergrad's in accounting and I got out of school and I worked in accounting for about two years and I figured out pretty quickly that while it was really good to have that base knowledge, that was just a little bit too much in the weeds for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I quickly moved out of there, moved in more into the finance world. From there, I became an investment analyst. So I, I worked at, um, JP Morgan for uh, 20, 20 or so years. And so I was able to do all of this within that one company. So move around, obviously the umbrella's giant. So worked again, accounting, went into uh, some different finance roles, became an investment analyst where I worked on the fixed income side and uh, really cool stuff there. And then I moved back into the finance world and became a CFO for a bunch of different businesses under the JP Morgan umbrella. And then uh, worked in the ops world for a while, um, just kind of, kind of an odd Trans, not odd transition, but a little bit of a unique situation where I was CFO of a business and the COO unexpectedly resigned. And we need, I had been grooming someone to take over as CFO for me. And just that the timing worked out right that the, the CEO of the business came to me and said, Hey, will you move into the COO role and we could have so and so that you've been grooming to move into your role? So it was actually pretty, pretty good um, career progression type of thing, especially for the person that we had been grooming to be CFO. So uh, worked in operations and was a COO for that business for a good while. Learned a lot from that, being able to utilize a lot of my accounting and finance skills, pull that into the operational world. Had a very strong person who was sort of my right-hand person that had much more operations experience than I did. So I learned from him. He learned from me. Different sides of the business was interesting. And then the last several years I was there, I worked. Uh, I moved into a planning and analysis role and uh, and worked in that for She's like the last maybe 10 or so years I was there, eight or 10 years and really, really enjoyed that a lot. But I just reached a point where I knew that I could be making uh, more of an impact. And I had two revenue generating ideas that had been shelved 
for some of the typical big company red tape bureaucracy type things. And the second one was just kind of the, the, the straw that broke the camel's back for me. Not that I was, I wasn't angry or anything. It was just like, I'd always wanted to kind of do something entrepreneurial and had just never, you know, never done it. I, I was in, in line to do it in 08. And then of course the economic crisis hits, the downturn hits, and I got tapped on the shoulder to do a lot of really cool stuff. So that sort of re reinvigorated me in my corporate career. So uh, I stuck around for another, what, seven years after that. So I left there in 2015 and didn't even know what I do now. Being a fractional CFO was was a thing because I was so, my entire career I'd been in the corporate world. So learned sort of what that was and what it looked like and got my first client. And oh my gosh, it was maybe the second week, I think I was on my way home from being on site with that client. And it was just like the, that you know, stereotypical aha moments, like the clouds parted and the sun is shining down and you hear the, you know, ah, you know, <laughs> it's like, this is what I'm supposed to be doing. I absolutely love what I do. It's not work for me. If anything, I have to pull the reins back because I enjoy it so much. And so I guess kind of a long winded answer, but yeah, it's, it's, there's been a lot of twists and turns along the way, but um, it, it's been fantastic. I had a great corporate career. I'm very thankful for that. And, uh, and it led me to be able to do and, and formed me and helped shape me to be able to do what I do now. So I'm very thankful for that. Yeah, we've had a few uh, fractional CFOs on the show, and it's something I'd never heard of either. It's it's an intriguing idea. Yeah, and it's interesting. Again, I had no idea what it was. But once, you know, I was meeting with a mentor and he said, you know, you need to be a CFO for several businesses. And I said, you know, again, thinking of my corporate hat, I'm like, well, how the heck do you do that? Like being a CFO for one business is a, <laughs> you know, 60 hour plus a week job. How do you do that for multiple businesses? You, you create hours in the week. Like, is there a new math for me? I don't know about. And uh, he said, no, 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 you do it on a part-time basis. And uh, he explained the concept to me and it made a lot of sense. And uh, you know, the, the super rewarding part for me is, you know, you have these folks that, are really good at what they do, but maybe they don't have the financial knowledge. And so being able to help them and, and teach them and, and, you know, how to run their business more profitably, more efficiently is so rewarding because they see the benefits of it, right. You know, usually pretty quickly. So again, it's, it's very it, in, intrinsically for me, it's very, uh, very rewarding. That's awesome. So are there any particular stories or moves that stand out in your mind as turning points within your career? Yeah, actually, it was, I guess, kind of was a little bit kind of sort of pre-career. I was uh, in, doing an internship during my undergrad, and I worked for someone who I had a lot of respect for, a very intelligent guy, still, uh, gosh, it's been a million years ago, and I'm still friends with him to this day and still go to lunch with him pretty regularly. And I asked him because I had so much respect for him. I said, you know, give me some advice. What should I be doing? You know, I was a, a, I just starting my junior year uh, undergrad at the time. And he told me to take every communication class that I could. He said, every elective class you take should be some form of a communication class. Because when you graduate, there are going to be a lot of other smart people. How you will differentiate yourself, especially in the corporate world, but, but I, I found really everywhere, but especially in the corporate world is your competition, the folks that are, you're competing against for those promotions and climbing a ladder and things like that. There are going to be a lot of other smart people. So that's not going to be enough. Being able to communicate, you can be the most intelligent person in the world, really know your material, but if you cannot communicate it effectively, it will absolutely put a, a lid on your career and it will, it will stymie your growth. 
And oh my gosh, he was so right. So here I was in my undergrad, Megan, taking speech classes, taking written classes, which I did not really care to do, of course, as a, you know, 20 year old, uh, who wants to take those classes when I could be taking like bowling, right. And get, as an elective and getting a, you know, an A and help padding my GPA, but oh my gosh, fast forward five years. And it, uh, he was 1000% correct. I'm so grateful for that. You know, that advice he gave me because that really did separate me, you know, so I was able to ascend the corporate ladder very quickly. And I, I lend it a lot to not just hard work and everything. I mean, again, everyone can work hard, but those communication skills were so critically important for me that helped me again. I think uh, that if I wouldn't have gotten that advice, I'm sure my career would not have turned out the way it did. And the growth would have been much slower and all that kind of stuff. So yeah. So now I, that's what I preach to our kids. I'm like, you got to take communication classes, especially in today's day and age, it's even worse now with text messaging and we're all getting used to that. And so I think, you know, direct communication skills are, are, are becoming almost, I wouldn't say a lost art, but somewhat of a lost art. So when you find someone who can communicate effectively, and we do so much communication via, you know, written communication with emails and things like that. So, you know, Megan, when you get an email that's 19 paragraphs long, right away, you roll your eyes and or it's just written poorly as compared to you get one that's very concise, clearly written. It's got some bullets in there. You can pop out the, the, the important parts. Man, the difference is just really big. Right. So I think that was probably the best career advice that I got. Again, it was kind of pre-career, I guess, but um, really, really helped shape my career and helped me ascend much quicker, I think. Yeah, I think that was excellent advice. Uh, I mean, communication and the ability to be able to tell a story are definitely differentiators, especially today. Yeah, we had, uh, just real quick, we had an example in the corporate world. I worked with, when I was an investment analyst, we had a fund manager that I worked with that was an MIT graduate, probably one of the smartest people I've ever been around, ever talked with or anything, but no offense to him. And he would even say this as, you know, he was self-aware and he would say it himself, he couldn't communicate worth a darn. So we couldn't take him on client meetings, even though we wanted to, because he was, he was a superstar in his field. We just couldn't put him in front of people because his communication skills were so poor. And so that it was a good thing that he was really, really good at, you know, being a fund manager, but it, you know, he could have done a lot more things and, and gone up um, sort of on the administrative side and become a chief investment officer and things like that. But because he didn't have that communication, those communication skills that, you know, it just, again, kind of put a lid on his career as far as where he could go. Yeah. I mean, when you're an introvert and, you know, not used to dealing with people and don't like dealing with people and aren't a good communicator, then you're definitely very limited in your career path. Yeah, for sure. No, absolutely. And again, as I, as the light bulb went off, as I got into my corporate career and I started to, to see and reap some of the benefits of, of having taken those communication classes and seeing the difference between myself and some of my peers and, you know, folks that I was coming up alongside uh, in the corporate world, it really, that, that light bulb just got brighter and brighter of like really hit home to me that, that how important that was. So tell us about Wentworth Financial Advisors. Yeah. Wentworth Partners. We, so really what, what, what that is, that's my first business I started and it's the fractional CFO, part-time CFO business. I work with business owners, help them operate their companies more profitably, more efficiently. As I like to say, I, I turn problems into profits. Um, think of, and I always use this silly example, but um, think of, you know, Paul, the plumber, 
who is a master plumber. He's been a plumber for 20 years, 30 years. He's really, really good at plumbing, but maybe he doesn't have the business experience. And so he doesn't, uh, he could maybe he's doing okay, but he could be doing much, much better if he was managing his business more profitably, more efficiently, knowing some of the things he should be looking for and things like that. So th- that's the sort of the one-on-one side of the business where I work, you know, directly with business owners and helping them through some of those challenges. Um, so again, very, very rewarding. Love it. Absolutely love it. And how do you think the accounting profession has evolved in the last, let's say, 10 to 15 years? Yeah, I would say, um, in my opinion, I think it's become less tactical and more strategic. I think overall, and I, I would say on the corporate side as well as outside of the corporate world, I think people expect more from their accountant nowadays, right? Maybe, you know, uh, way back when it was, you're, you're the debit and credit person and uh, you close the books. And I think now there's more expectation. And I think, um, you know, for example, the I, I think the role of controller and CFO have become more blended. And I think at least when I was in the corporate world, it was, there was definitely a dichotomy between, you know, when I was a CFO and I had a controller, there was definitely a dichotomy of, of responsibilities that were very much, you know, accounting on one side and very strategic financial on the other. And I think those roles are starting to get a little more blended because I think, again, I, I would say that people expect more strategic vision from, from their accountant now than they probably did, you know, like you said, 10 or 15 years ago. Yeah, would definitely agree with that observation. So in your experience, how do you think organizations get cost cutting wrong? Ooh, oh man. Again, I could probably talk about this for days, but I guess generally speaking, what I have seen again from the corporate world as well as now in into the, you know, uh, small and middle-sized businesses, I think a lot of times when and especially think about it when we just are, are coming through this pandemic and I think a lot of people hit that panic button last year. And the biggest mistake I see to answer your question is really just making across the board cuts. We need to cut expenses by 20%, period. A real quick story from the corporate world that's related. We were in a budget meeting and um, the CEO of the business, we had been working on this, putting this deck together and we waited and he was almost an hour late for the meeting and we had done all this prep and worked, you know, so, you know, 16, 20 hour days for the three or four days before preparing for this meeting. And he walked into the meeting and without even sitting down at the chair at the table in the conference room, he lifted up the deck, that we, the presentation deck that we had, and he kind of shook it a little bit. And he said, and he tossed it back down on the table and he said, that feels like it's $20, $20 million too high. And he walked out. <laughs> and we, were, we thought it was joking. We, we were looking at the door waiting for him to turn around and come back in. Like, no, he was serious. He didn't even look at the numbers. His uh, right off the bat was it's 20 million too much, cut $20 million out. And I think that's one of those things that, again, that's what I would say is probably the biggest mistake I see is people just say, okay, we need to cut everything by 20% as an example. And I think that's the wrong approach to make because that can really cause a negative cumulative like snowball effect that really can make your business spiral. And I think, uh, you know, it's a big mistake that a lot of companies make. So where should CFOs be looking to cut expenses? Yeah, in my opinion, especially when you're looking to cut expenses, right? So that would tell me in most situations when you're looking to reduce expenses, you're probably in a, a, a scenario where your revenue is down and that's why you're, you're doing it, right? So the, one of the most important things I think is you have to keep in mind, you wanna keep the existing pipeline of revenue flowing because again, if you cut across the board, 
you may be making reductions in expenses that are now help that are drying up your pipeline. And so now, again, as I was mentioning before, the the cumulative negative effects. So now you you're cutting expenses that are impacting sales and decreasing sales further. So now your revenue is down further. Now you have to cut expenses again. And then you do the same, make the same mistake. Now you just continue to make the same mistake and it compounds each time you do it. So really for me, I look at two things. We go through the exercise and we literally pull out the PL and every expense line and we say, okay, we grade every expense line. Does it have a direct, indirect, or no impact on two things, sales uh, and or revenue and existing uh, customers, customer service? Because that's that's the second part you don't want to forget, right? Some people get the first part and they go, oh my gosh, I don't want to cut this expense because that's going to hurt sales. Okay, they get that part. But what they forget about sometimes is customer service. You don't want to lose the existing customers that you worked your tail off to get, right? Everyone knows how difficult it is to get a new customer and the cost associated with that. So the last thing you want to do when you're cutting expenses is to you know reduce things that may you know um, make your your retention rates go haywire and you lose some of your existing customers and so those are the the, the areas that we look at and we literally score them a one two or three between you know having zero impact indirect or direct impact and so you know obviously having a score of a six would mean it has a direct impact on sales and customer service those expenses we stay the heck away from them. That's the absolute last resort. I don't want to touch those if at all possible because I don't want that pipeline to dry up. So um, I think those are really important things to keep you out of that that negative, you know, snowball impact. So if we specifically take a look at labor expenses, which I know can be, you know, the the highest cost on a PNL, where are some good areas that companies can target? Yeah. And, and honestly, that's a tough one because it depends on the industry, but I would say generally speaking, I would lean back on uh, what I kind of just mentioned as far as the first place I I look on in labor expenses is look at the anything that's in the cost of goods sold section. Meaning that again, if you're trying to reduce expenses, my assumption would be that your revenue is down. If your revenue is down, your production volume is probably down. If your production's volume is down, you don't need as much cost of goods labor, right? Any of your labor expenses associated with that. And again, it depends on your industry, your, your company, your niche, et cetera. But I think that's one of the really important things. And the way to do that, I think, is to keep a close eye on your gross margins. And you'll see right away if, if your volume is down and your, rev- your revenue and or your production volume is down, and you have not made the appropriate reductions on your cost of goods sold labor, you're going to see that your margins are going to, your gross margins are going to start to go crazy on you, right? They're going to start to drop significantly because now you have much more expense. It's not moving in the same line as your revenue. And so one of the mistakes I think that people make, again, going back to what we talked about a little bit ago, is that one of the first places that I see people make reductions or they look to make reductions is they say, I can't cut my, let's say, let's say you're a manufacturing company and they go, well, I can't cut my production people. And they cut salespeople instead. And in my opinion, that's a wrong that's the wrong way to look at it because again, you're 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 cutting that sales staff, which is help is, is going to drive that that revenue pipeline, that sales pipeline you have, and then you have less you have less sales, which means you're going to have less widgets to produce, which means you need even less warehouse people, right? Manufacturing folks, uh, labor. So I think, you know, and, and making reductions on the labor side is never 
never a, a fun thing to do. But I think as far as a, a strategic financial, fin- most financially beneficial way to look at it is looking at those labor expenses associated with, with cost of goods sold. Of course, every year I would recommend, and I'm sure everyone, especially now, you know, it's been going on for gosh, what, 10, 12, 15 years now, but every year I encourage folks to go through and do an audit and at least get two additional quotes for healthcare expenses because, man, they're just going out of control and they've been doing that for a long time, but it never hurts to get a couple new quotes every single year to compare with the current plan you have and and look at that because, you know, depending on the size of your company, you know, even reducing those expenses by, you know, three, 4% could make a significant difference, not only for you, but obviously for your employees, depending on how much of that, that expense that they're bearing on their side as well. So I think that's another thing that, you know, to make sure you do. And I, I, I didn't mention that one first, because I assume that with the emphasis on that over the last, you know, eight, 10, 12 years, I think probably most people are doing that, or I hope they are. Yeah, I know, you know, that's becoming a huge line item and growing quicker than any other line item every year. Yes, definitely. So are are there any other like low hanging fruit buckets that you would point to like that? Or is that the main one that people should be making sure they're checking into every single year? Yeah. I mean, again, as you mentioned, I think with, with the, any kind of health benefits with the, with the increases and the sharp increases they've had, I think other than making reductions in your actual resources of employees, et cetera, I think that's the, the main one. And, and obviously look at that one first, because that may help you save money to not have, not have to let people go or, or, or furlough people or things like that and um, impact their lives. You know, we went through a situation in the corporate world during the 08, 09 timeframe when, when things were pretty tight, where, you know, we made a decision uh, on my leadership team within JP Morgan, as we said, look, we're, you know, we were told on the pools we had for compensation on our labor expense and things. And I said, you know, we're just going to make across the board cuts as far as everyone's going to feel this, not just a few people or whatever. And the reason we did that is, you know, and I, I got pushback from someone during a, um, a, a all hand staff meeting and they said, well, geez, you know, I don't know if I'm okay with that. And I said, well, here's the difference. Either we all bear this a little bit or metaphorically, I stand 10 people up and two of you lose your jobs. So do we all want to bear some of this or do you want to be, take the chance that you're going to be one of the, you know, the two out of the 10, the 20% that we're going to have to let go to reduce expenses. And so again, I think it's, you know, never a good thing to have to do, but I think that's one of the things on the other side with labor expenses. I mean, again, there's a whole bunch of different things to do there, but really for me, cause I I'm very cognizant of the fact that I don't want to hurt people. I want to have as little impact on people's personal lives as a CFO as possible from the financial perspective. So, you know, trying the last resort is having to let people go. The second, the last resort is furloughing folks, you know, for a period of time, but, you know, even trying to stay away from those, you know, at least me personally, that's, that's kind of how I approach it. So specifically taking a look at the process of budgeting and forecasting, I know it's a problem that organizations will base their budgets and forecasts on historical trends and maybe they'll carry over unnecessary costs from year to year. So how do they, how do they avoid getting into that trap? Yeah, that's a great question. Well, first I would mention is in the, on the small business side, you would be amazed, Megan, and maybe you're aware of this already, but you would be amazed at the number of companies that do not have a budget. And it just blows me away. Literally a budget 
creating a budget and managing to a budget is one of my, I call my three uh, pillars of financial success. And, and then, so that's where I start with every client. We start with cash flows, number one, right? Without cash, you don't have a business. So how can we improve that? Even if it's okay, there's probably some things we can make, some tweaks we can make to improve that. The second one is budgeting. And literally, and it's not happened, but for me, if I meet with a prospective client and they're, they balk at having a budget, that's a deal breaker for me because I know how impactful and how powerful it is. And then the third pillar is, is pricing and getting your pricing right. But, but back to the budgeting piece, I think the, the best way to do that, to avoid having some of the potential bad habits of, and the historicals that carry over is to focus on your margins. And the two specifically, there's a whole bunch of margins you can focus on, but for, for the sake of brevity, I'll say the two you should focus on are your gross margin, which is less important to me. Net margin is the most important. And let me tell you why. So obviously on the gross margin side, creating the budget, I when we create budgets for clients, we start with the revenue goal. What is the revenue goal for the year? Your cost of goods sold, you should be able to drive right off of revenue. And then you once you do that and you create that sort of draft, check your margin, check your gross margin. Is it where you want it to be? Is it where it should be for your industry? Is it where it should be compared to the last year, the last two years, the last three years? Are you making progress towards your goal? So I have a client, for example, that we're we're in a three-year process to get to a 56% gross margin. We started at 42%, which was not good at all. When I first started working with them, they were at 42%, which for their industry is not good at all. And so we've three over three years, we budget and we've been inching along, making up that 14% gap over three years. So now when we create that, we look at the gross margin and make sure the budget reflects where we want to be for that, that year. So for example, this year for 2021, our goal for gross margin is 52%. It was, it was somewhere shy of 52%, 15.5% or something. So we made tweaks in the budget to make sure that our budget reflected the goals we had for gross margin. The other piece is, so typically that's not where you're going to see some of the historic, negative historical things fall through. It can carry through, I should say. You'll see it more on the administrative side, below cost of goods sold. And the thing there is that is net margin. You can find out pretty quickly if your net margin where is it at versus the last year, the last you know several years? And if it's dropping, obviously that's a problem. That's not what you want. And it's probably because you're carrying over some of those, you know, some of the bad habits from the past. So, you know, again, we start with revenue, we go to cost of goods sold, then we check our gross margin, make sure it's at the target levels we want. Then we dig into admin. Now, I think you do need to use obviously historical expenses as a guide on your administrative expense. So, for example, you know how much your rent is. So you're not just flying blind, but I think really going through that and making some comparing year over year. So last year versus this year, when you're creating the budget, are we up or are we down? Are we comfortable that with that? Why are we up or are we down? Because for example, you may be, have reduced something that maybe you didn't want to, like say um, marketing and advertising. So I guide people that they should spend typically between two and 8% of their gross revenue on marketing. So we check that every year, depending on the company and where they're at. If they're in growth mode, we want to spend on the higher end of that scale. If they're not, I don't like going below 2% because again, that, that impacts that sales pipeline. If you're getting return on your marketing and advertising, if you're not, shame on you. You should be, you should be tracking that and monitoring it. So that's another thing that we check. And so you may have made expense reductions in your budget to get to a certain margin level or whatnot. 
And then you make check and say, oh gosh, that's going to cut us down to, you know, one and a half percent of marketing, you know, marketing spend. That's not where we want to be. So we need to increase marketing and make reductions elsewhere to, to sort of pay for that. So that's sort of the way I approach it and try to stay away from carrying over any historical bad habits that we've had. And uh, you mentioned pricing. So do you have any tips on how to get that component right? Oh man, again, this is one of those topics. So I, I talk about all the time. It's in the pricing side, the, the primary thing that I see that's a problem is I call it the silent business killer. And the silent business killer is that almost every business that I have ever worked with has at least one product or service that they provide that at best is break even. In most cases, it's losing them money. And I call it the silent business killer because, of course, the owner says, Ken, why would I purposely have a product that was unprofitable? Well, you wouldn't, but it's there. You just don't know it. And so think about that scenario, Megan, where you have a product or service like that, that is maybe losing 5%, let's say. And in most situations, the unfortunate part is that's your highest volume product or service. And it's the highest volume because it's priced too low. So you sell it like crazy. Well, think about that scenario. The more you sell, you're running in quicksand. Oh. You're running faster and faster and faster. You're selling more and more and more. And your bottom line is getting worse. And intuitively, it doesn't make any sense. My revenue is going up, but I'm, I'm losing more money. Or I, my, my earnings are going down. What the heck is going on? That's the silent business killer. And just the sheer fact of getting rid of that. Think of the impact that has. And when I say pricing, I don't mean just, you know, across the board, oh, let's increase all our prices 10% or 15 or 20% or whatever. No, the sheer fact of peeling back the onion on every single product and service you have and making sure and knowing the margin that you're making on every one of those products and getting rid of the ones that are either break even or unprofitable, not, I shouldn't say get rid of, get rid of or change the pricing on it to get it to where you want it to be. But just getting rid of that, that product or service that you're selling that's losing 5% every time you sell it, think of the impact. You could have less sales, but your net income goes up. And again, to most people not in the financial world, they go, wait a minute, well, hold on, time out. That makes absolutely no sense whatsoever. How can I have less revenue but make more net income? But think about it. You won't have that, that drag of that product that's losing 5% for every unit you sell. So that's the, the price on the pricing side. That is the number one mistake that happens. And like I mentioned, Megan, almost every single business I've ever worked with, different geographies, different industries, niches, almost every single one of them has at least one of those. And it's killing the business or, or hurting the business and they don't even realize it. So speaking of being able to peel back the onion, are there tools or technologies available that you'd recommend to help track and analyze costs or, or margins? Yeah, I mean, uh, I mean, I guess the easiest one is, you know, I, I mean, gosh, I hate to even admit this, but uh, I, I am a numbers nerd, so I'll say it. I, I use Excel a lot. You know, we'll dump numbers out of, I mean, QuickBooks is getting better and better as far as for the, you know, small and even middle-sized businesses can use QuickBooks. There's a lot of other products for larger companies, but that have more tools available within them. But QuickBooks is getting better and better, and you can do more analytics within QuickBooks. Mm -hmm. um, it's, that's a relatively inexpensive tool to have, and you, you should be using some form of, of QuickBooks or one of its competitors. And then, you know, just being have the the wherewithal to, you know, again, I'll I'll just roll up the sleeves and get a bunch of data and pull it out of whatever the financial system is, QuickBooks or whatever it might be, dump it into Excel and start crunching away, but really 
creating, I, I think the, the main problem I see with that is the consistency, create something that you can replicate easily, you know, whatever the, the reporting period needs to be, whether that's biweekly, whether it's monthly. So because if it's difficult to create, so I'm, I'm thinking of a, a non financial uh, savvy business owner that really doesn't want to deal with a lot of these things, or maybe doesn't have the Excel skills or whatever. So my job in that scenario is to make sure that I create the tools, whether it be within a financial system such as QuickBooks, a financial software such as QuickBooks, or it's something that I can easily have, you know, have someone pull out of QuickBooks and dump into an Excel file and make it an automated process for the owner to make it easy for them. Because if it's difficult, they won't use it. And if they don't use it, then they won't get the impact out of it, obviously. So, but yeah, really every single, you, you got to always, I'm about big, I'm, I, I call it MYM, mind your margins. You got to pay attention to the margins always and make it easy to pay attention to them. You have to compare versus budget, your actual versus budget every single month on a monthly basis, on a year to date basis. And then, you know, your business, you should have some specific KPIs that you're measuring as well. And again, whatever tools, that you can use to automate that process as much as possible. Um, again, to make it easy to be able to monitor those. So that way you'll be more apt to use that tool more often and track it more often. Just a quick side note on KPIs though. I know it's a big, uh, big thing and everyone likes to throw around that acronym, but I'll say one of the mistakes I see people make with KPIs is they track too many of them. And if you track too many, none of them get enough attention in my opinion. So I like to try to have five or less per business. And then as they improve and you, you set targets that where you want to get them to, and as they get to that level on a consistent basis, they kind of move to the second page eyes of less important ones. And we move new ones up that, you know, need, need attention. It's, it's a, an ever evolving process, but I think that's, uh, I know you didn't ask specifically about KPIs, but that's one I want to mention that as I see a lot of people, they get K, they read a book about KPIs and they see how important they are. And they are they're super, super important, critically important to the success of your business. But then they go out and they create this reporting that has 20 KPIs. And then they, their attention is divided across 20 KPIs instead of really focusing on what are the five or maybe even three that are absolutely the most critical for us right now that are lagging the most. Let's put the attention on those three to five and really focus on those three to five and get them better and then move new ones in as, the, as, as we go through an evolving process. Yeah, that's great advice. Keeps people from trying to boil the ocean, I'm sure. Yes, yes. So if our listeners remember just one thing from our discussion today, what would you want it to be? Have a budget. I'll, I'll say two things because they're, they're related. Have a budget and mind your margins. <laughs> <laughs> because uh, those, if you can, if you do those two things, I promise you, those will help you with everything else. Because if you are, are trending to your budget, that's going to point out any shortfalls you're having very quickly so you can change and, and adapt as necessary without getting through six, eight months of the year and, and then realizing you have a problem in a specific area, whether it be expense, revenue, sales, et cetera. And then the margins, the margins will, they don't lie, right? They're, they're going to be able to be an early indicator on a problem area and it'll allow you to dig into that specific margin if it's trending in the wrong direction and figure out why, because that's, you know, again, that's, that's, really, really an important thing to keep in mind. And I, I, those are the two things, man, I'll tell you, you get those two things right you, you, on the financial side of things in your business, you will be in, in a, on pretty good footing. Yep. That's great advice. So lastly, now that we're well into 2021, what's one goal, either personal or professional that you're hoping to achieve this year? 
Oh, that's an easy one, actually. For me, uh, one of the things we set a goal for this year, and we're working very diligently on it, uh, is we want to be able to help more veteran-owned and and women-owned business uh, businesses, especially as we're going through 2020 and hearing from folks. You know, I've I've got a YouTube channel. I do a lot of videos. I do a lot, a lot of live streams. We have a pretty large social media following, so I have the the benefit of that as I get to hear from a lot of different people. Not not always positive, um, but but that's okay. Uh, cri- criticism is good, right? You can learn from it. But um, and what I found was over and over, I see that I, I think those two areas that I'm very passionate about helping veterans, helping women business owners, and I I found that in 2020 they're absolutely being underserved. Um, and so that's that's the one big goal that I have is helping those two specific groups in 2021, making a b- bigger penetration into helping them. Yeah, that's a great goal. Ken, thank you so much for joining me today. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me, Megan. I'm, I'm really glad. And like I said, I'm, I'm honored to be on your podcast. Yeah, I've enjoyed speaking with you and hearing about your experience and advice on how to effectively cut costs and just generally manage your business. So to all of our listeners, I hope you've enjoyed this episode as well. Please tune in next week. And until then, take care of yourselves. If you're ready to boost efficiency and streamline your accounting processes at significant cost savings, it's time to talk with Personiv. Their people-powered solutions have transformed the delivery of back office tasks and general accounting functions for decades, partnering with clients to provide everything from accounts payable to payroll services. See what Personiv can do for you by visiting personiv.com. You've been listening to CFO Weekly presented by Personiv. Please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts to hear all of our episodes. Want to learn more? Check out personive.com. Thanks for listening.